Well, good morning, church family. Uh, It's such a privilege to be here this morning and to preach God's word for you. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 30. Romans 8, verses 18 to 30. And as you go there, I'm going to read God's word for us. Here's what the word of the Lord says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. May he bless it. Join with me as we pray. Father, this morning, even just on my drive here today, thinking of those words that Peter said to you, to whom shall we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. And it's this morning that we come to hear from the words of eternal life, your holy scripture, your holy scripture in Romans 8, 18 to 30. Oh God, would you, would you speak to your people so intimately, so personally? Would you convict? Would you exhort? Uh, would, would, you, would, you, would, would they hear you ultimately, not me, God? I'm the weak vessel. I'm the sinful person. But what a privilege it is to be a vessel for God's mercy and grace this morning. Oh, Lord, would you encourage your people, stir their hearts, and give them a big view of Christ. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. 
There's a bunch of things we do without being aware of it. We click our pens, bite our nails, twist our wedding rings, if we have one. Uh, I still do it anyways, just so I can feel a part of the, the married folks. Uh, we, we rub our eyes, we roll our eyes, and we play with our hair, if we have some. It's a touchy subject for us brown folks. I don't know about you, but like, I, I love my uncles, but sometimes when I look at their hair or what's remaining, I feel like God's reminding me, it's coming for you too, son. It's coming for you too. But, there, but there's something else we do without realizing it. We exhale. We sigh. We sigh. The tricky thing about sighing is that it has the potential to reflect something positive or negative. Rarely is it both at the same time. Like, think about if you have the privilege to visit a massage therapist, and as they commence to work on those knots and give the massage, there's that sigh of relief. It feels good. However, I would venture to say, majority of the time we sigh, it's in response to something negative. At that point, it's not merely classified as a sigh. It's deeper than that. At that point, it could be classified as what we know to be groanings. Groanings. 2020 to 2021 were years of groaning. Death upon death, division upon division, lockdown upon lockdown. The constant need to adjust and navigate uncertain terrain. Couples groaned at the loss of a dream wedding. Students groaned at the abnormal experience of their education. Families groaned as they couldn't have a normal funeral for their loved ones. And churches groaned through the motions of restrictions which continue to take place and continue to take a toll on leaders and members. And then, of course, there's your particular situation, whether it's related to COVID or not, a peculiar trial that never fails to make you groan. You can't help but wonder, will the groaning stop? And the truth is, as long as we're on this earth, we will continue to groan. But the good news is that the Christian story doesn't end with groaning. It ends with glory. So this is why I've titled my sermon this morning, Groaning Our Way Into Glory. Groaning Our Way Into Glory. Paul unpacks this understanding of the Christian life in verses 18 to 30 by initially setting up with his initial, or sorry, closing remarks on adoption in verse 17. It reads, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He made it clear that an integral part of being adopted into God's family is identifying with Jesus Christ. He suffered, so we must suffer. 
He was glorified, so we will be glorified as well. This is what brings Paul to say in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Notice how Paul begins that verse. For I consider. Consider. Well, why? When do we need this the most? When we suffer. Suffering is a time where all sorts of thoughts flood into our heads, right? They can come from different sources and places. Job's wife told him to curse God and die. The devil in the wilderness told Jesus to bow down to him and that he'd give him all the kingdoms of this world. And then, of course, there's our thoughts. Is God good? If he is, then why is this happening? Verse 18 comes out of the gate teaching us how to practically handle suffering. It's saying, think. Think. Think in what sense? Think about glory. Isn't it fascinating that when Paul talks about suffering here, and even a passage like 2 Corinthians 4, 17, where he says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're not primarily encouraged to look forward to the day when the area of our suffering stops on earth. We're encouraged to look beyond Beyond the life that is under this sun. Now, if we pay closer attention to verse 18, we're able to catch something else. Paul's not actually comparing suffering with future glory. He's contrasting it. It's so different. Recall Paul's famous words in 1 Corinthians 15, where he goes into great detail how we will have resurrected bodies one day. Recall the end of Revelation where God will make everything new. Everything, both the heavens and the earth. When when you put that against our present suffering, regardless of what that suffering is, it's night and day. It's night and day in light of the glory that is coming. Paul is not speaking in hypotheticals. Glory is coming. And yet, we groan. Because the sufferings of this present life. We live in a world that screams, this is not how it's supposed to be. And Paul unpacks this further in our first point. God's creation and their groaning. God's creation and their groaning. Verse 19 For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul in this section personifies creation, which means he assigns it with human characteristics. And by creation, he means everything that God has created on earth. We're informed that they're waiting. Not your typical two minutes for popcorn to pop waiting, or even waiting on the phone for a Fido representative who may or may not actually help you, this waiting is done with eager longing. The picture here is a person who's 
on their tippy toes trying to see, you know, that famous person that's coming in the crowd and, and they're trying to get a look at them. Creation waits like that. It waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Believer, that's you and I. That's you and I. Yes, in one sense, we've been revealed as God's sons, his children, adopted through the finished work of Christ, but we have yet to be revealed in the fullest sense. We have yet to be glorified. The reason behind creation eagerly waiting for this moment is explained in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Using personification, Paul speaks of creation having a will of its own. And as a result, not wanting to be subjected to futility. It did not want to come under this this realm of meaninglessness. Paul traces this action to a hymn, which I would venture to say is God. The first reason for this takes us back to Genesis 3, 17 to 19. Listen to what God says to Adam after he and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. The earth is cursed by God because of Adam's actions. Just as human beings are affected by the fall, so is everything in this planet. The earth flourished and functioned in absolute perfection prior to sin. I imagine flowers never withered or animals never sought to destroy one another as a means of survival I also think of the beautiful mountains in our day, which have so much potential to kill us. So much. Volcanoes and all those things alike. Without a choice, creation went into a completely different direction. And it wasn't Adam who ult- who's ultimately responsible for its subjection. It was God. We see it in Genesis 3. We also see it in our text. Paul says in verses 20 to 22, but because of him who subjected it, listen to this, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Did you cast those two words? In hope. Only God could have done something like this. In hope. He subjected his subhuman creation. Because one day, the shackles of corruption will be broken. So until then, until then, creation feels as if it's tied to this never-ending decay where it groans together in unison. And it does so in the pains of childbirth. He uses the picture of labor because we know that while that is an extremely painful process, there is something so beautiful at the end of it. You see, one day creation will obtain a freedom that's similar to what God's people will experience in glory. 
a freedom which will enable them to function and thrive like they were always intended to before the fall. Listen, where there is brokenness, where there is messiness, where there is destruction which you cannot see beyond devastation that feels like it cannot be undone. When God is in the picture, there is hope. There is hope in your lack of finances. There is hope in your addiction. There is hope in your mental illness. And there is hope in your singleness. Isn't it amazing how we see that in what creation is looking forward to? We see that in what creation is looking forward to. If this is, what, if this is what's going to become of creation, if God will set them free as they enter into a glory like ours, we can add that to our list of reasons to hope when hope seems lost. Amen? Amen. So creation awaits the freedom that they will experience alongside the children of God in their glory. And it's from this point that Paul addresses those who are God's children, those who will experience the glory creation anticipates. This brings us to our second point, God's children and their groaning. God's children and their groaning. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation groans, and so do we. It's interesting how he prefaces our groaning with having the first fruits of the Spirit. Here he uses agricultural imagery. First fruits of a crop anticipate the harvest that is to come. The first fruits, as far as the Holy Spirit's concerned, is his indwelling presence in every believer. His daily empowering to live as new creations. His regular reminders of how we are God's children. It's through the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. And guys, those are just the first fruits. Those are just the first fruits. They are not the harvest. And before he properly ties this idea of first fruits together, Paul talks about the reality of our groaning, making a connection between the first fruits of the Spirit and our groaning. He's trying to show us there's more to our groaning than we think. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. As God's children, we do not groan as the world does. We don't travel through our tribulations and trials with our heads down as if there's nothing beyond this. Sometimes good things happen. Sometimes, you know, bad things happen. An unbiblical worldview has no concrete hope attached to it. And when there's no concrete hope, it's inevitable for people to pursue things like drugs, alcohol, food, cars, sex, to cope, you name it. When there's no hope, these are the things that they're going to go through, we're going to go through to cope. The Christian worldview, however, it's loaded with hope. 
hope that isn't fixed on the potential for our present suffering to end. It's fixated on this absolute reality of what we will experience. It's one we wait eagerly for. Like creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. We wait for the day all of God's children are completely made new. A day where instead of calling our Father in heaven through the Spirit on earth, we will converse with him face to face. Face to face with perfect bodies and no sin. This day we look forward to. This hope we cling on to, Paul says in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. We were. Past tense language tied to the act of salvation. He's pointing back to the initial saving work of Christ in every child of God. The day where we repented of our sin and placed our faith in Christ who died for our sins so we could be forgiven and have unhindered, unlimited access to the Father. Keeping this in mind, he continues verse 24 into verse 25. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He began verse 24 with what Christ did for us in the past because that's our hope in the present of what will take place in the future. If we could visually see or experience the glory that is to come, we're no longer hoping. I mean, why would you? Now, does that mean biblical hope has no certainty attached to it? Far from it, guys. Just because we cannot see what we're hoping for doesn't mean it's not coming. So what do we do then? You you know the adoption we experience now but is yet to be richer? The bodies we have now that's yet to be perfected? As verse 25 says, we wait for it with patience. This idea is expressed well by John Stott. He says, we are to wait neither so eagerly that we lose our patience, nor so patiently that we lose our expectation, but eagerly and patiently together. I love how that sounds. I hate how it resonates with my life. Some days I'm on the phone with my friends and we're just taking turns, expressing our desire for Christ to come back soon. We're wishing the process of glorification could be sped up in that moment because the suffering is too much. The trial is too much. The groaning is too deep. On the other hand, I can get so accustomed to everyday living, preparing messages, watching movies, fellowshipping with friends. Instead of eagerly desiring the glorification of the saints, I treat it as something that's somewhere far in the distance. It's like all the way over there. Don't have to really pay much attention to it. And that's why I appreciate what John Stott says. He shows us, you know, balance is possible. Not only is it possible, but it's something we ought to strive for, eagerly and patiently together. If we're being honest, that's not the only area that requires God's help. Our times of suffering, which are times of much groaning, they they put us in a vulnerable spot. 
And, and when we're vulnerable, weak, discouraged, listen, God comes to our aid. In the context of what we're discussing, God comes to our aid through his Holy Spirit. This brings us to our third point, God's Spirit in the midst of groaning. God's Spirit in the midst of groaning. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We've already touched on how God helps us in our groaning by anchoring our hope in the glory that is to come. But now Paul wants to touch on the unique help and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our weakness. And he draws us to the subject of prayer. Just like Paul makes a connection between the first fruits of the Spirit and our groaning, here he makes a connection between our weakness and prayer. Again, if we're being honest, we already struggle to pray as it is, right? How much more than in our weakness? This is so relatable because often in my weakness, I am without words. Pain has a way of disabling the tongue, doesn't it? There have been many times where I've come before the Lord and I'm either, I'm either just like pacing through my room or, or I'm just, I, I just don't know what to say and I'm standing there or sitting for like 15 minutes straight, not knowing how to express myself. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that's been there. But hey, sometimes we need help with our prayers. Not because we don't say anything, and not because we even say the wrong things, but because we're not sure which direction to stir our prayers in those moments of weakness. Again, listen to Stott's comments here. Why do we not know what to pray for? Perhaps because we are unsure whether to pray for deliverance from our sufferings or for strength to endure them. Also, since we do not know what will be or when or how, we are in no position to make precise requests. To put this into perspective, it's like, okay, Lord, it's been two years of restrictions. Do I pray that you end whatever is going on? Or do I pray... For, for, for you to, to give me endurance to keep pressing on. Or maybe, maybe you're here and you really want a child. You can't seem to figure out why things aren't working out. Do you pray for God to still provide? Do you consider adoption? Or do you pray for contentment in the midst of never having a child? Is it a mix of the three? Like, like Father, what do I say? But it's precisely in those times where the Spirit puts words to our prayers we can't articulate and brings them before the Father. He does so through groanings too deep for words or wordless groans. Colin Cruz puts the Spirit's groaning in its proper place by confirming this is not tongues. He does the interceding, not us. Secondly, While we groan out of a place of suffering, the Spirit groans with the goal of praying for us. Take a look at verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
Paul identifies the Father as he who searches hearts, a characteristic of the Father that was commonly brought up in the Old Testament pertaining to his insight on human beings. 1 Samuel 16, 7, I love this verse, a good example of this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is our Father in heaven. This is our Father in heaven. Now, in in verse 27, uh, that in-depth insight is applied not to a human being, but to the spirit, specifically his mind. Following this is Paul's affirmation that the spirit not only prays to God on our behalf, but he prays in accordance to his will. That's huge. It's through this mutual understanding between the two members of the Trinity that reassures us of the Spirit's efficacy in his intercession. For whatever is prayed according to the Father's will, we know this to be true, the Father will answer. Here's Paul's point. When you're waist deep in suffering, Lacking the ability to speak a coherent sentence. And the only thing you can do is groan. Rest in the fact that the Holy Spirit of God intercedes for you on your behalf. And as he intercedes for you on your behalf, he never gets rejected by the Father. Because he's always praying a prayer the Father will answer. Isn't that what you and I want? Don't we want to emulate our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will, but your will be done? The answer, of course, is not always. Not always. But that's what makes the Spirit's intercession all the more precious. He goes out of his way to pray prayers we cannot articulate or correct prayers we do articulate. Because he knows where you and I are safe, where you and I are secure, is in the will of Almighty God. So beloved, take heart in the Spirit's groanings that are too deep for words. According to verse 26 to 27, we don't know what takes place between the Spirit and the Father. But Paul draws our attention to something we do know. This brings us to our final point. God's promise of glory and the end of groaning. God's promise of glory and the end of groaning. Verse 28. And we know for those who love God, All things work together for good for those called according to his purpose. There it is. There it is. Uh, The glorious Romans 8, 28. Quoted as frequently as Canadians say, I'm sorry. Now this is a good verse. And it's very precious to many. Meaning, when you read verse 28 in light of verses 18 to 30, it, it becomes so much more powerful and reassuring. Let's start with who Paul is specifically referring to here. He says, those who love God. Who are the people that love God? Christians, frequently referred to as God's children. These are the people who have, as the song goes, decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. 
the people who proclaim Jesus Lord over everything that lives and moves, including themselves. People who authenticate their love for God by obedience. As Jesus put it in John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. It is for believers and believers alone that God works all things together for good. We can categorize all things at large by pinpointing the circumstances which bring about groaning on our end. Very seldom do we wonder if the good things have a good purpose in mind. Rather, it's the bad. It's the tears. It's the toils. It's the, it's the tribulations. Well, typically, that's the most we take away when we're in the thick of suffering. I'm not sure what's going on. I don't even have words to express my pain, but I know God is working for my good. However, listen, our reassurance can go beyond that. The good is reemphasized in that phrase, those called according to his purpose. And calling is another indicator that Paul is speaking of Christians here, a word that he will circle back to in verse 30. He's telling us the suffering Christians experience, those who love God and are called by him, they ought to know God is working for their good and that good is tied to his purpose for them. I want you to hold that thought about purpose because we'll go deeper into that shortly. But I want to briefly mention here, if Romans 8, 28 makes it clear as day that Paul is talking about Christians, then it's also true about who he's not talking about. In other words, for the person who is listening and is not a follower of Christ, all things are not working for your good. You probably experienced suffering of some sort through choices you made, fueled by sin. And in light of that, you might think, well, things will eventually come around for good. And I got to be honest with you, no, they won't. No, they won't. The decisions you make out of your own autonomy are not leading you to something better. But why am I telling you this? Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because it's not too late to share in the confidence that God's children have. If you recognize your need for Christ by seeing the gravity of your sin and the hopelessness it produces, if you recognize that his death paid for the punishment you deserve for your sins, and upon this recognition, you repent and place your faith in Christ, from that point onward, life may not be sunshine and rainbows, but you can know with every fiber of your being that all things will work together for your good. Don't you want that reassurance? It's truly amazing because like I said, the good Paul has in mind when writing, the purpose he's trying to get at for those who are called, it's so much richer than we typically realize. Listen to verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He continues to unpack the hope and reassurance believers ought to have with the word for. For. 
His train of thought is ongoing. He's saying Christians are those who God foreknew. Knowledge of the Greek word used here and the Hebrew translates to know. This helps us define what Paul is trying to convey here. God has both an intellectual understanding and affectionate, intimate relationship with those whom he predestines. Predestination refers to that act that God had predetermined all things in eternity past, especially those he would make his children. So to clear up any confusion, foreknowing does not come before predestining. God did not look into the future and decide, oh, yeah, 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 that that person, they're going to choose me. So therefore, I am going to predestine them. They're going to obey me, so, so, so I'm going to make them my children. Instead, without any actions on our part, God sets his love on his elect through his sovereign decision-making. He said, yes, this person whom I already know and love, I will save one day through the work of my son. Church, isn't that just beautiful? Could you imagine if being a part of the family of God was based upon him viewing our actions that would take place in our life before we were born? I mean, I could speak of my own life and say that would be tragic. That'd be horrible. Based on all my sinful words and deeds, my desire to pursue anything but God, how on earth could I possibly qualify to be a part of his family? And that's why I think it's so unfortunate that doctrines like this have a point of contention among believers. While we're quarreling, we're missing out on the beauty of these doctrines. You know what foreknowledge is telling us, church family? Foreknowledge is telling us God was good to you before you even uttered a word. Wow. Wow. God was so good to you and I that he predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. It's one thing for God to predestine us to become Christians, but after we become believers, we begin this process of striving to be like Christ every day. A process that is chiefly carried out by the Spirit and involves a ton of suffering and groaning. How does suffering make us more like Christ, you might wonder? Suffering has a unique way of prying out what we may not be able to recognize until we suffer. I'll tell you something, maybe you agree with me, maybe you won't. But I think, I think suffering becomes a lot more bearable when the desire to get out of it is not the priority. Rather, it's looking more like Christ. And you know how we carry this out? We carry this out by the power of the Spirit. Understanding Christ takes preeminence in the family of God. Paul indicates this with the word firstborn. Christ sits at the right hand of God in all his glory. That's the kind of glory we work towards in the midst of our groaning and hope to share in one day. As noted before, this hope is not based off of hypotheticals. It's based off of certainty. Watch, watch, watch as Paul brings this full circle in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's a thought for us. If God were to ask you, how would you like to be reassured that all things are working for your good? How, 
Tell me, how, how would you like to be reassured? I bet many of you would ask, like me, to see the future. Let me see the future. Will, will this person I've been praying for get saved? Will I ever get married? And if so, when? The pandemic has made job hunting super tough. Will I ever find one? Especially one that I love? The housing market is nuts, absolutely bonkers. Will I ever find a house that's affordable and close to my church? However, God doesn't show us the future. In the spirit of verse 30, he gives us a chain. In the spirit of verse 30, he gives us a chain. That's right. Romans 8.30 is known as the golden chain of salvation. The chain imagery tells us that everything is linked together. If one of these things takes place, all of them will take place. The people of God, the people God chooses to be his children in eternity past, that is, the people he predestines are those whom he calls. The word Paul mentioned in verse 28. Calling, also known as effectual calling, is this idea of being drawn with success. Now, I don't know how many of you fish in Markham, but lots of people do in Georgetown. And just like a fisherman casts his rod into the sea and successfully brings out a fish into his boat, God casts his rod into our hearts and never fails to draw those whom he has predestined to himself. This is why calling is connected to how we respond to the gospel Paul makes mention of this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. To this he calls you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we've been called then, giving a proper response to the gospel, we are justified. This, this act where God pronounces the verdict of not guilty as he sees the righteousness of Christ covering us. Which brings Paul to say, these people, these Christians, they will be glorified. It's in the past tense. It's in the past tense. Did you catch that? Glorification, the day when all our sin will be expelled and our bodies perfected, that that hasn't happened yet. But you see, beloved, that's why our hope is unlike the hope of this world. God is so certain of things that will take place according to his word. He pens it in the past tense. That's crazy. And if God is so certain of what will take place in the future, then we should be too. We should be too. There comes a time in every Christian's tribulation where we say to God, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make it. Father, I groan in my weakness. And as I groan, I long for the day where my suffering will be no more. And in total transparency here, Father, I don't know if I'm going to make it to glory. This is exactly where the golden chain of verse 30 comes into our lives and says, you will make it. You will, not because you somehow muster the strength to persevere, but because God has made a promise to you that he will bring you home. And at no point in the golden chain will God drop his people. If you're predestined, you're called. And if you're called, you're justified. And if you're justified, you will be glorified. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon beautifully summarizes this. The chariots are fired 
desire are at your door. And it will only take a moment to transport you to the glorified. The everlasting song is almost on your lip. The portals of heaven stand open for you. Do not think that you could fail to enter into your rest. If he has called you, nothing can divide you from his love. Distress cannot sever the bond. The fire of persecution cannot burn the link. The hammer of hell cannot break the chain. You are secure. That voice which called you at first shall call you yet again from earth to heaven, from death's dark gloom to immortality's unuttered splendors. Rest assured, the heart of him who has justified you beats with infinite love toward you. You will soon be with the glorified where your portion is. You are only waiting here to be made ready for the inheritance. And with that done, the wings of angels shall carry you far away to the mount of peace and joy and blessedness where you shall rest forever and ever. Believer, God will bring you home. You can bank your life on it. You can bank your life on it. He will bring you home. But until that day, creation will continue to groan. We will continue to groan. And the Spirit will aid us as we groan. But that day, the day is coming where we will groan no more. Romans 18 to 30 puts it plainly for us. We groan in our suffering, but we won't groan in glory. We groan in our suffering, but we won't groan in glory. A day where we will sin no more, weep no more, and suffer no more. A day that doesn't come close in comparison with the suffering we go through on this earth. A day that God is so certain of, he penned it in the past tense. Dear Christian, glory awaits you. It awaits you. May your heart take comfort in this. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we're so thankful that our salvation is in your hands. Man, would it be such a stressful thing to carry ourselves to heaven, but you carry your children to heaven. And God, we pray, we pray that in the midst of our groanings, we would not look inward, we would look heavenward. We would look towards the heavens, we would see the hope that is coming for us. And would that radically change the way we live our lives in the midst of our suffering. In Jesus' name I ask this, amen.